John 7, 1 through 14. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews heard him at the feast and saying, Where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, He is a good man, others said, No, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. Peppa and George are going to the playground today. Should we drive to the playground? No, let's walk. Look, it's just over there. The playground is quite close. <laughs> OK, let's walk. This way, everyone. <laughs> We're going to the playground. We're going to the playground. <laughs> oh! Where has the sky gone? Don't worry, Pepper. It's just fog. What's fog? Fog is a cloud that is on the ground instead of in the sky. Ooh. Hmm. It's very thick fog. I can't see a thing. Hmm. Maybe we should go back home. Yes. We'll go to the playground another day. Aww. It is too foggy to find the playground. So Peppa and George have to go back home. Now, which way is home? Are we lost, Daddy Pig? <laughs> Don't worry. I know exactly where we are. This way. Oh, who put that tree there? Daddy Pig has walked into a tree. Are you OK, Daddy Pig? Yes, I'm fine. This way. Good morning, and for those of you who are tuning in later online or on websites or podcasts, welcome. We're talking this morning, no doubt, about being fogged in. I uh, did some research on this, and I found out this. The foggiest place on the planet is in Canada, off the Newfoundland coast. It's a place called the Grand Banks, where the Labrador Current from the north meets the Gulf Stream from the south. The result is that there is fog there, You'll love this. 206 days a year. Foggiest place on Earth. So if you want to keep your neighbors from looking in your windows and seeing what you're doing, that might be the place for you, right? Actually, the more I thought about it over the last few weeks, through the lens of Scripture, the foggiest place on Earth might be the human heart. 
When it comes to seeing truth and especially the identity of Christ, human heart is generally fogged in. Now, fog can be a beautiful thing, right? It can render things in sort of a magical, soft way, but it can also be very dangerous because it hampers our visual perception. You can't tell how close you are to another car or truck, and that's why whenever it gets foggy, authorities are really worried about pileups on the freeways. The largest pileup, this is a week of research for me, right? The largest pileup I could find because of fog occurred, you'll love this, San Sao Paulo, Brazil. In September 2011, 300 vehicles stretching over a mile. Amazingly, only one death. So fog can be a problem. Well, in John chapter 7 of the gospel, a dense fog has settled in over the hearts of the people concerning Christ. First of all, there's the fog of unbelief. His brothers, his own brothers, don't believe in him. Second, there's a fog of hatred. He's got enemies, a growing number, and they're growing in animosity, uh, and it intensifies through this chapter. And then third, let's just call it a fog of religion, where people would look at Jesus and go, well, okay, he looks like he's a good guy, or no, he's not, he's just misleading people. Uh, you know, this Islam actually considers Jesus a prophet. And even in Islam, a prophet is considered a person who hears from God and speaks God's words. But Islam refuses to believe this prophet's own words as to who he is as a result, as religion is kind of fogged in. So we need the fog lifted. And that's where John takes us this morning. In John chapter 7, there's a, another installment of lifting the fog and seeing Jesus for who he really is. So we just read these verses, so let's dig in. The point one I want to point out today is uh, Jesus' unwavering priority. Uh, in lifting the fog around Christ this morning, four things I want you to notice. First is this. It's kind of cleverly buried in the first couple of verses in this passage. And it's this, his unwavering priority. So here's what it says. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the feast, the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So let me explain what I mean when I talk about his unwavering priority. John begins this chapter with one of his favorite phrases, after this, or after these things. John loves that phrase. In Greek, it's a transitional phrase, signifying that we are moving from what was before to something that's coming up next. Of course, that prompts us to ask, okay, what things are we talking about? Well, we might assume that what he's talking about or all the things we read about in chapter 6. But there's a, a little bit of a problem. Because there's a gap of time between the end of chapter 6 and the beginning of chapter 7. That gap represents at least six months. And you go, Dwayne, how do you know that? Good question. Well, if you go back to John 6, 4, we're told that the Passover, the Feast of the Jews, was at hand. Now in John 7, 2, we're told, oh, the Feast of the Booths, or the Feast of Tabernacles, was at hand. So Passover is in the spring, March or April. Feast of Booths occurs in the fall, in October. So there's a six-month gap between what happens in chapter 6 and what takes place in chapter 7. And John mentions absolutely nothing to us about those six months. Totally silent. So in defense of John, he was not attempting in his gospel 
to give us a thorough chronology of Jesus' life. It's more of an anthology, just uh, selected events, selected messages that showed clearly who Jesus is with the purpose of people coming to believe in him. As we know from the last chapter of the book of John, John's purpose for writing it is right, that you might come to know Jesus and believe in him. So, here's my point. Six-month gap between the end of chapter 6 and the after this in chapter 7. So to fill in the gaps, since I wanted to know what what Jesus was up to during those times, we have to go to the Gospels of Matthew chapters 15 to 18 and Mark chapters 7 to 9. They help us fill in the blanks. So let me tell you what we find Jesus doing during those six months that John refers to as after this. It's kind of interesting and telling. He's spending time with his disciples. He moves around Galilee, goes up north a little bit, goes east a little bit, but he's generally kind of hanging out in the north. But he's not hanging out with the crowds. Mostly he's with his disciples. For example, he goes up to Caesarea Philippi, only with his disciples, where he asks them, who do men say that I am? And then they stumble around for a while with various views that people have out there about him. Then he asks, but who do you say that I am? He's wanting to build his identity into his men. Then he takes three of them on top of a mountain, and he's transfigured just in front of those three disciples. Later on, there's an argument among the disciples. Who's the greatest in the kingdom? Jesus gives a little discourse to them on the greatest in the kingdom, just to his disciples. Then he gives a list of parables that are really unlocked only to his disciples. So the point I want to see, I want you to see is this. In chapter 6, Jesus spends a couple of days with 15, 20,000 people, feeding them on the mountain and all that kind of stuff. He teaches a little bit in Capernaum. And then he's off for six months, pretty much alone with his disciples. What does that tell us about Jesus' priorities? Yeah, his unwavering priority is to train those disciples to be unleashed into the world after he's gone. Or let me put it another way. You ever wonder why Jesus spent three and a half years in ministry? That's not a long time, three and a half years. But why three and a half years? I mean, some people will say, well, you know, Jesus came to die on the cross and pay for our sins. Okay, that's true. But it's not all he did. If that were true, Jesus only needed a weekend here on earth, right? Come, die, go in the grave, rise again. Okay, done. But he spends three and a half years. Yeah, he was teaching crowds here and there, doing miracles here and there. But by and large, he spent that time training up his disciples. So, a question. Did Jesus have a clue? Did he know that the message he was presenting that needed to be passed on was a message that the whole world needed to hear? What do you think? Yeah? No? Yeah, I think he knew that it was, right? For God so loved the world. So everyone on earth needs to hear this message, right? So if that's true, then what was Jesus' strategy for getting that accomplished? Answer, discipleship. Did Jesus hold mass meetings? Not really. He could have started up in Tyre and Sidon, then worked his way down the coast, right? Caesarea Philippi up north, the Decapolis cities around the Levant, 
all the way down to Jerusalem, holding mass meetings all over the place, feeding, healing people everywhere, getting people interested. Sounds like a good plan. Just not one that he had used. He doesn't do that. What he does is he pours his life into reproducing his life into the lives of his disciples. And then he tells them as he departs in Matthew 28 to do the very same thing. Go into all the world and make what? Disciples. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. That's his priority. Years later, here comes Apostle Paul, not part of the original 12, but he so believed in this principle of discipleship that he did it with Titus, he did it with Timothy, and then he told Timothy to do it with others. The classic passage on this is in 2 Timothy chapter 2. Paul says to Timothy, And what you've heard from me, first generation to second generation, in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men, third generation, who will be able to do what? Teach others also. Fourth generation. Now this concept of discipling another person also works very well in evangelizing the world. Here's a staggering set of statistics that's almost mind-blowing when I kind of dug into it this last month. Check this out. If we had here at the Surge an unlimited budget, we have no debt, but we do not have an unlimited budget. Uh, but if we did, and we could organize a mass evangelism event every single night and fill a stadium with 50,000 people every single night, and we did that every single night for 35 years. And let's just suppose that on every single night, 1,000 people gave their lives to Christ. You would say... Man, that would be spectacular. That would be awesome. That would be glorious. It'd mean in one year, there'd be 365,000 new believers. But here's the reality. At the end of those 35 years, we would be further behind the task of world evangelism than the day we started. You go, how do you figure that? Simple. The global birth rate. The global birth rate now on planet Earth would exceed all of those who come by faith in all of our massive stadium activities. And you might rightly think, well, that's kind of sort of depressing. <laughs> Sounds hopeless. So what are we to do? So let's pretend this. You right now, singly, are the only Christian on Earth. If you were the only Christian on earth, and you made a commitment, and you said, God, by your grace, would you help me lead personally one person to Christ, another human being to Christ, over the next year? And let's say that happens. So you start one year with one Christian, you end the year with two. Then in year two, both of you decide, hey, let's Ask God to help us lead one person to Christ this next year. So, first year, two Christians. Second year, ends with four Christians. Third year, eight. Then 16. Then 32. Then 64. The exponential growth of that approach would mean that within 50 years, 
the entire world would hear the gospel. And many, many, many would be one to Christ. That's what happens one-on-one. So this helps explain Jesus' activities, his priorities, why he spends a couple of days with up to 20,000 people and then six months with just 12 guys. He is deadly serious about building himself into the lives of his disciples. That's his priority. Even more amazing. It's something any person who is a genuine Christian can do. Because if you are a Christian, you are infinitely more knowledgeable than the nearest lost person about spiritual things. So you simply share what you know, what you have experienced in the life of Christ in your life, and you're just living it out. And as you continue to grow in Christ and in his word, and you have more to share. Because doing what Jesus tells you to do will result in God being incredibly active and real in your life. That means we got to get our focus off of ourselves and invest in that other person. By the way, that's how church succeeds. The success of a church isn't the size of its congregation. It's the depth of the discipleship. Because anybody can get a crowd, right? You know this. It just takes some money, takes some ingenuity, give out free food, have some good music, bring in a harmonica playing monkey or something, and people will come just to watch the show. But to make a disciple takes a life poured into another life. That's what we're trying to do here with our small groups, with our Sunday teaching, with our online services, with our men's group. Um, That's why I've been rooting around for a couple of months to see if there's any interest in maybe getting the, the gals involved here to learn more, discuss some of the great truths and doctrines of Scripture, read through the Bible together like the guys are doing, not for learning's sake, right? Not for learning's sake, but to equip us to be about the business of making disciples because that was Jesus' priority. It was the apostles' priority. It was the early church's priority. It should be our priority. Two questions to ask you at this point. One, how long have you been a Christian? Number two, where are your disciples? How long have you been a Christian? Where are all your disciples? You say, Dwayne, that sounds so arrogant to call people my disciples. Listen, the Apostle Paul said the reason the church at Thessalonica was doing so well and working so great is because they followed him as he followed Christ. He wrote to them and said, and become followers of us and the Lord. Twice to the Corinthians, he said, imitate me, follow me as I follow the Lord. There's nothing wrong with following somebody if that somebody is following Christ. It's a model, something Paul did. Now, I want to say something. If you're a ministry leader in any capacity, a pastor like me, assistant pastor, ministry to kids, teens, small group leader, whatever, please don't worry about the size. You concentrate on the depth. And God will take care of the size. You concentrate on discipleship and let God do the math. That's the biblical principle. Here's what they did in Acts chapter 42. uh, Acts 2, 42. It says, the early church, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. All that is, is, okay, these apostles hung out with Jesus. Jesus taught them. He lived their lives with them. They 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 got fed and nourished. And so they then are proclaimed by Christ the the, the duty of teaching the people in the church. 
And then it says the fellowship. I look at that as encouragement, not just sitting around a dinner table talking about sports. All right? The fellowship. What do you fellowship for? Okay, you've been taught what Jesus taught, the disciples, the apostles. You've been taught that. Now you have to have the challenge to go out and live it, right? To do it. Jesus said, right, the person really loves me, does what, I, does what I ask, obeys me, follows me. That's what following means. So they're meeting together, but what are they meeting together for? Oh, fellowship. Let's talk about what we're going to do to actually implement the stuff we just heard that Jesus taught through the, through the apostles. And then the breaking of bread. Why? Because you've got to eat, you've got to have some energy, and then prayers. Oh, God, help us. God, help us do this. Identify people. Identify, give us words. Give us a heart that wants to show people what you're about. And that's why the church, it says, was adding to their number day by day. Not because the apostles were doing all the, all the evangelism. It was by people who got won, by, won over by Christ. They're sitting around being taught, and then they're simply going out and saying, okay, where's my, where are my disciples? Who am I going to disciple? Who am I going to love? And they, they brought people in to get saved. Simply that. So we worry, on, we worry about depth. We worry about teaching people. And let God worry about the breadth of it. And I also want to say this. Here's really the reason I'm bringing this point up. Anybody can do this who's a Christian. Maybe you think, well, I can't be a musician, I can't be a preacher, but discipleship is something everybody can do. If you're a brand new Christian, you can grab the nearest lost person and say something like this, hey, why don't we get together and just open the Bible and see what it says? And if you start sharing stuff, and if you get stumped because they got a question you don't know how to answer, call me, call E, call Greg, call Yasin, call somebody who knows more than you do, who's further along, get some answers. I tell you what, you do this, you're going to grow exponentially more than you would if you just sit in a chair on a Sunday morning, right? Let's say you're working a job. You got so many commitments, right? You don't think you have the time. But if you're tethered to a job, there may be some believer in that job that you can connect with, or an unbeliever that both of you can connect with to help talk about spiritual stuff. Maybe lead to Christ over the next year. And then if they get led to Christ, then they help disciple them. And you're off to another generation, right? If your mom uh, stays at home, right? You're raising kids, Perfect, right? Disciple those kids. As you follow the Lord, they will follow you, and you'll launch them with that. So Jesus has an unwavering priority to build himself into the lives of his men. We should, too. Point number two, if you're taking notes, I'll make it easy for you. It's on the screen. Jesus has an unbelieving family. We see it in verses 3 to 5. So his brothers say to him, Leave here, go to Judea that your disciples might also see the works you're doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. And then the comment, for not even his brothers believed in him. So when John says brothers, these were technically the half-brothers of Christ, same mother, different dad, which I trust you get. If not, you can ask about it during the online service tonight. But after Jesus was born, the Bible indicates that Joseph and Mary had natural, human, normal husband and wife relationships, resulting in other siblings. We're even giving, uh, given a list of those names in Matthew chapter 13. Jesus teaching in a synagogue in his hometown of Nazareth, and somebody asks in verses 54 and 55, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? Are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? 
So, if on the list of the brothers, it's a chronological list, which it almost certainly is, because in ancient times they've always put the oldest first and worked their way down to the youngest. This means that these brothers and sisters, think about it, had the only big brother in the world who was perfect. Just not so sure they thought he was perfect. They give Jesus the suggestion, dude, get on down to Jerusalem. That's where stuff's happening. Why would they suggest this? Again, since we know that they are unbelievers. Three possibilities kind of come to me. Possibility one, they remembered, as we should, that Jesus just lost a whole bunch of disciples or people following him back at chapter 6. Remember we're told many of his disciples, after he's talked about being the bread of life, turned away and stopped believing or following him. And it could be that his brothers are saying, look, you, get, you want to get those guys back? You want to get those people back? You want to bolster your, your falling popularity ratings? Go do something fantastic, big, magical in Jerusalem, where everybody's hanging out. That's possibility number one. Number two, maybe they're like every other Jewish person living 2,000 years ago in Israel who was waiting for a Messiah, a political Messiah. Remember chapter 6? He fed them. They immediately wanted to make him king. Well, if his brothers are thinking that, then Jesus would go down to Jerusalem, do something so amazing that it would cause a revolt, and he would take over the country as the political leader, overthrow Rome, and uh, hey, since we're the brothers, surely we'll end up with some really cool positions on staff, right? Possibility number three. I tend to lean towards this. They just wanted to be convinced. They're not convinced. The key, the key word in verse four is the word if. Notice it? They said, if you do these things, show yourself to the world. They didn't believe him. It's like they're saying, look, you're up here in the boonies, hang out alone with all these disciples, go show yourself to the Sanhedrin. Go show yourself to all the people gathered from all over the world in Jewish central headquarters and do something spectacular there. If you can pull, if you can pull that off, well, maybe you can, maybe you can't. We're not sure. They didn't believe in him. Sort of like the crowd in chapter 6 that said, after he feeds them and heals all kinds of people, they then utter this. What sign are you going to perform that we may see and believe? <laughs> okay, so think about this for just a second. Even Jesus' brothers were unbelievers. I'm having you dwell on that for a second because I have a hunch that some of your relatives, as are some of mine, are unbelievers. And you may have tried everything. You've witnessed to them. You've asked them to watch maybe surge videos, listen to podcasts. Maybe you've given them books to read that you thought were really cool. So far, nothing's worked, right? And you just feel bad, maybe even guilty about that, like you failed or something. So again, I tell you, Jesus' own brothers were unbelievers. What that tells me? Proximity is no guarantee of spirituality, right? Even one of the disciples that Jesus chooses Judas Iscariot was an unbeliever. So if you're wondering to what extent Jesus' mom and family didn't believe, check this out. Mark chapter 3, Jesus is really busy ministering, uh, so busy that he doesn't take time to eat. And his family finds out about this. You know what they said about Jesus? His family uttered this. He is out of his ever-loving mind. And they go to where he is, and they're looking to drag him away for an intervention or something. I don't know if they had mental health institutions back in Israel at that time. Probably not. 
probably just wanted to lock him away in a closet or something. They think he's lost his mind. So what I want to pitch to you is this, hope. Jesus' family situation should provide hope to you and me if we have unsafe family members. You two have discovered that the hardest group in the world to witness to is your own family, right? Where you came from. Why? Because they knew you win. And by that I mean before you became a Christian. So be encouraged to know that his mom and brothers don't stay unbelievers. They eventually come to believe. They show up in Acts 1, chapter 114, in the upper room where all the disciples, or the apostles are. It says the mother of Jesus and his brothers were there. They had become believers. You know what it was that caused them to be converted? Resurrection. Yeah, when their older brother dies, goes into the grave, and he gets up from the dead, that's when they go, oh, okay, this must be something real. And they came to believe in him. In fact, you know that Paul the Apostle writes about the oldest of the younger brothers, James, in 1 Corinthians 15. Paul writes this. He says that he, Jesus, was buried. He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, just like it was supposed to happen. And then he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. And then, all by himself, then he appeared to James, a special appearance just to James. Hi, James. Uh-oh. And James came to believe. You know what happened to James? He became the leader of the church in Jerusalem. He wrote a book in the New Testament called the Book of James, the youngest brother of, of Jesus, Judas, also known as Jude, wrote the book of Jude in the New Testament. You know what's even cooler? How they begin their books. When James begins his letter, he doesn't say, James, the oldest brother of Jesus. No, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jude opens his book. I love this. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ, and brother of James. Yeah, he loved his older brother too. But he's a servant of Christ. So listen, if your family's not saved, please just think this way. My family isn't saved yet. Throw that yet in there because God has all sorts of ways of pulling that off. He might use you, he might use somebody else, but be in prayer, be hopeful. So we see Jesus' unwavering priority in discipleship, his unbelieving family. And point three, Jesus' uncompromising chronology. We see this in verses 6 to 9. This is what Jesus told them after they suggest he goes down to Jerusalem. My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you. See, they were part of the system, right? Part of the world. They were unbelievers like most everybody else. The world can't hate you. You're part of them. But it hates me, Jesus goes on, because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go on up to the feast. I'm not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. So everybody who reads the Bible should pick up on the fact that Jesus was always on a timetable, a divine timetable. If you have the idea that Jesus sort of wakes up in the morning, gets out of bed, and kind of goes, well, I wonder what I should be doing today. I know, I think I'll go to Capernaum. I've always wanted to see that place. If that's what you think happens in the morning, that, you got that wrong. Every second of his life was a timing issue. I want to show you that. 
here's a sampling of the verses that kind of bear this out. John 7.30. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. John 8.20. But no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. John 13.1. Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. John 17.1. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. What hour is Jesus referring to? Yeah, his death. His whole life was moving steadily, inexorably toward the cross. And it all was happening at exactly the right time. When his brothers say, go show yourself off in Jerusalem, Jesus merely responds, it ain't the right time. You know what the right time would be? Six months from now. Because six months from this point would be the next Passover. And that's the Passover where Jesus publicly pronounces for the first time his ministry, reveals himself to the nation. Remember what happened? He crests the Mount of Olives, and he says to the disciples, go to the next town and get a donkey. It wasn't because he wanted a donkey ride. He was fulfilling Zechariah's prophecy, the Messiah will come on a donkey gentle. And that's when people started publicly praising him, putting palm branches at his feet, saying, Hosanna to the son of David, blessed be the name, blessed be he who comes in the name of the Lord, and yet within a few days after that, that same crowd would be screaming, crucify him. Because that was exactly the right time. It's all a timing issue. Galatians refers to this. But when the fullness of time, exactly the right time, had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. It's all about the right time. In fact, get this. Daniel the prophet hundreds of years before this, was given information from God to an angel that predicted exactly when the Messiah would show up. Did you know that? Daniel chapter 9. An angel, Gabriel, visits Daniel and tells him this, Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be. And then we have to do the math if you go back to that prophecy. Because Gabriel divides the time frame into two parts, one 49 years, one 434 years. But the final answer is 483 years until the anointed one is what? Cut off. Cut off is not dying of old age or of natural causes. Cut off is exclusively used of sudden death by murder or execution. What kind of prophecy is this? It's exact time prophecy. The 483 years begins with the order to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. It's given by the Persian king in charge of the world at that time on the 14th of March, 445 B.C. There's a guy who was the head of Scotland Yard years ago named Sir Robert Anderson. He decides to take that prophecy and kind of break it apart. He calculates time from 14 March, 445 B.C. He calculates that 483 years. He breaks it down into days. And he gets the number of days by using the 360-day Babylonian calendar that was in use when the Jews were in exile there. And he comes up with 173,880 days. So he starts counting those days. 14 March, 15 March, 16 March, 17 March. And you know what the day was when it ended? 173,880 days later? It was 6 April, 32 A.D., the day Jesus said to his disciples, go get me a donkey. And a few days later, he was cut off 
executed on a Roman cross. Why am I belaboring this? Simply to say this, my life, your life, will go a whole lot better if we just recognize that your time and God's time may be on two different things. How many of you believe that God is always on time? That God's never late? How many of you have ever wondered if God's on time? If you're honest, I think we've all been in situations where we're thinking, God, where are you? Why are you late here? So we can either be like Jesus' brothers and say, well, Jesus, you better do this right now for me. Or we can say, hmm, no, I think my brother Jesus is God, so he probably knows the best time. So if it's not right now, maybe I should be praying for patience in waiting. Maybe we can just opt to leave our lives in Jesus' hands because he's got perfect timing every time. Charles Spurgeon reminded us, us of this. He said this, There are no loose threads in the providence of God. No stitches are dropped. No events are left to chance. The great clock of the universe keeps good time. And the whole machinery of providence moves with unerring punctuality. Jesus is always right on time. And I'm very glad of that for me. Of all that's going on in the world, of all that's going on at your house, of all that's going on in my house, it's great to know that he is always on time and always in control. Our last and final point in seeing Jesus clearly through the, through the fog is this uncommitted assembly he's facing. He gets to Jerusalem. He doesn't go with his brothers. He knows they're looking to kill him, so he goes separately, secretly. He says, but after his brothers have gone to the feast, he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The word private can be translated in secret. The Greek word is cryptos. It means he was being purposefully secretive, kind of hiding. It says this, the Jews were looking for him at the feast. Yeah, yeah, sure. Where is he? There's much muttering about him among the people. While some said he's a good guy, others said he's no, he's leading people astray. Yet fear of the Jews kept anybody from speaking openly. So it seems to be a few different people in this assembly that's gathered, right? Once you get to Jerusalem. Number one, there's a group called the Jews. That's John's shorthand for the religious leaders. People are trying to kill Jesus. We know from verse 1 they're trying to kill him. And they're told, we're told here, they're looking for him. So his brothers go up to the feast. These Jews would naturally expect to find Jesus with the family, because in those days the people would travel to these festivals kind of together as a family in caravans. So the Jews figure Jesus is around since his family's here. But notice the second group of people. People say, well, he's a good guy. Then the third group of people, nah, he's not. He's leading people astray. So what we see is that the Jewish religious leaders in these two other groups we're in a total fog about Jesus. If they are fogged in, what's the right answer? Was he a good man? Was he a deceiver? What's the right answer? That's kind of a trick question. Neither one of those is the right answer. He wasn't a good man. You know why? A good man doesn't say the things that this guy says about himself. A good man doesn't walk around going, I'm God, and if you don't believe in me, you'll die in your sins. Good men do not do that. Only God does that. None of these three groups were correct. The right answer? It's the answer Peter had in the previous chapter. Hmm. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. That's the right answer. Yet today you have groups of people that say, well, I think Jesus is sort of a farce, right? What's really ruined the world, in my view, they would say, is fundamental religion. 
like all these people who believe in the Bible or believe in this religion or that religion, they go, well, he's just a good man, a good guy. Good example. They say that too. C.S. Lewis, in one of his classic moments, wrote so lucidly when he said this, either this man, Jesus, was and is the Son of God, or else he's a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for being a fool. You can spit at him or kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let's not come up with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. What Jesus really tends to do is kind of divide people. Anyone who does not fall at his feet and worship him as Lord and Savior or surrender their lives to him will continue to exist in this fog we're talking about this morning. So the question has to be, has the fog been lifted from your eyes so you can see Jesus for who he really is and for what he really is? Or maybe the fog's been settled in for a long time. And you kind of like it that way, because the fog makes things pretty, but it also makes things dangerous if you're trying to navigate your way through the fog of unrealistic notions about Christ. And on that note, let me pray for us. God, there's not a page in the Gospel of John that does not scream out who the identity of Jesus Christ really is. Whatever notions anybody would come up with, the media, people, whatever, if he's just a good person or is he a deceiver, is he a prophet or whatever, the fog gets lifted in this gospel as we read it. Jesus talks about who he is over and over and over and over again. And the people get more agitated because they don't want to hear what he has to say and the implications of what he has to say. But some, like Peter, would say, hey, we know something. We've come to know something. You're the Christ, the Son of God. Many people started off like Jesus' brothers did, unbelievers. But they've come now to the point where we say, hey, we're a bondservant of Christ. We belong to Christ. He gave us life for us, we give our lives back to him, and we're happy we did. Lord, we pray that we would have the hearts as we leave this place Find another person who doesn't know you. Man, they're all over the place. We don't have to hunt. We just have to bump into them in the street. They're everywhere. People who do not know you, who are in a fog about who you are. And you have given us as Christian insights into you in the spiritual world that these people do not know. They're walking around in a fog. Would you encourage us? whether we're introverts or extroverts, whatever, just one-on-one have an engagement with others, other people who do not know you and look for inserting what you've done in our lives through our belief in you. And let it stick as we invest our lives in others. And may you take care of the growth issue as we dig deep into knowing you and playing it forward with at least one other person. And we ask all of this in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.